All right, everybody, welcome back to Rumors, Money, and Movies. Today we have a really special guest, Eric Davis, who works for Fandango. He's been in the industry for 20 years, and really happy to invite him onto the podcast. Just want a quick shout out to my sister and her really good friend, Alyssa, for putting us together. So, Eric, thanks so much for joining Rumors, Money, and Movies. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Happy to be here. Yeah, likewise. So, I ask everybody the same thing when they come onto the podcast. What's your favorite movie? What's your relationship with film? Obviously, you're professionally into the business, but either personally or professionally, what what really drives you with the with film as an art? Yeah, I mean, the favorite movie is always a hard question to answer. You know, I usually go with Back to the Future just because it's it's been a film that's been with me since I was a little kid. And it was probably my first favorite movie when I was a little kid. Um, and I've grown up and, and sort of uh, uh, been able to kind of... Um, pour a lot of love into that film through collecting posters and DVDs. And uh, I was able, you know, I was able to cover the 25th anniversary of the film and interview everybody in the movie. And so that film just has a special place in my heart. Um, and it's the one that, you know, I'll geek out on with my buddies the most over that film and and the, the, the subsequent two, two parts uh, as well. So I would probably say Back to the Future. Um, in terms of like what drives me and my love of film. Uh, I, I've been going to movies since I was a little kid. Um, I grew up, uh, my father and and my two older brothers were big movie nerds um, already. And um, always talking movies, always talking stars and who was in this movie and who was in that movie. And so I was just around that kind of conversation at a very young age. And, um, and then I, you know, I grew up, uh, I spent, uh, my younger years um, before third grade in Manhattan, living in Manhattan, going to Broadway shows a lot. Uh, my parents were also big Broadway nerds. And so, um, you know, going and watching, you know, live performance and then uh, spending a lot of time in the movies, uh, going to the movies all the time with my dad and my friends. Um, I've just always been a movie buff and it's always been a part of me. And so as I started getting older, and as sort of the digital revolution began to emerge and people were now writing about movies online and that you could get paid money to cover movies in the digital space, once that became started to become a reality, um, I, I kind of started to try to find my way into those pockets to be able to do that. And um, back in, I would say, 2004 is when I first started doing that. Um, and, uh, and then I just, I just never looked back and I, I, you know, I, I love movies so much. And so once I figured out a way to get paid to, to cover movies in some capacity, I, I just sort of made that my North star to just try to do that for as long as I possibly could. That's great. I was watching your interview with four nerds you did like last year and you said you didn't know it was hard, but you did say back to the future. So you, that's kind of, you've sort of singled in on that one, I guess. Yes. Yes. That's, it's always the first one I go to. Um, just because it, it meant so much to me as a kid. And I yeah. spent many years at, at, when I was younger uh, just being such a, a big fan of that film and uh, and getting to meet everybody in the cast and getting to cover it also on the flip side mm -hmm. as an adult um, was just a really nice, I've just had a really nice, well-rounded experience with that film. Right. Um, and so I, that's my go-to usually. Yeah, so you, you did grow up in Brooklyn. So you kind of talked about how you had a relationship with your family and Broadway and the arts, but was there a certain moment in time when you realized that, okay, it's like a hobby. 
I like it. I watch a movie with my friends, but now I'm actually seriously considering pursuing this as a professional. Yes. Yeah. I mean, nothing against Brooklyn. I did grow up in Staten Island, although my, okay. I had my, my, a lot of my family grew up in Brooklyn. So okay. I grew up, I, I started, I was lived in Manhattan until third grade and then I moved to Staten Island and I lived there, but you know, I, I feel very close to Brooklyn uh, because a lot of my family lived in Brooklyn. Okay. Um, but but yeah, I would say when I when I quit my full time corporate job um, to write about movies for a living, and I took that chance, I would say that's when things shifted for me um, from being a hobby to okay, I'm gonna actually make a go of it, and I'm gonna actually try to have a job doing this. Um, and so that moment, you know, probably was was the significant moment. I wasn't making a lot of money at all. Um, I, what had happened was there, uh, this is sort of in that 2005, 2006 area. Um, this is before the social media revolution. Um, this is when like sort of blogs, uh, were, were a big thing and people would kind of have their own personal blogs and they would link to other people's personal blogs on their blog. And it was very, it was the very early goings of sort of what social media ultimately became, um, you know, maybe MySpace is kicking around in that in that era, and um, there was uh, I wrote a, a, my own personal blog, which was a movie focused blog, and then AOL at that time, um, AOL was of course the biggest internet provider. Um, they uh, had a, were acquiring a series of blogs that were all uh, dedicated to a, a certain uh, aspect. So they had like Auto Blog, which was all, all about cars, and they had. Um, and Gadget at that time, which was all tech, and then Cinematical, which was movies, and that I kind of, they brought me into that, uh, onto that site um, when, and I was getting paid like $3 per news article that I wrote, and so that's where I started, and um, uh, at some point, I, I, they made me like an editor of the site, and I was making a little bit more money, and I didn't like my job, and I was like, you know what, I'm going to take that chance right now. Um, and I was, uh, fortunately I was living with someone at the time. And so we can kind of shoulder some of the costs, which I think is always, is always important when you kind of take a big risk like that. But, um, but yeah, that moment when I, when I left that corporate job, making a good salary, uh, with room for advancement, um, in order to, to make really no money writing about movies, that was the moment when, when it shifted for me. Oh yeah. Also, sorry about saying you were from Brooklyn. I thought I thought I heard you say in an interview that you said you were from Brooklyn, but I sat nine. It's okay too. Um, but yeah, that was a great uh I love that what you said there about taking risks and taking chances. So you had a blog, but you've been with Fandango for over a decade now. So how did you yeah. end up at Fandango? Yeah, I was writing for this for this other blog, Cinematical, you know, and sort of cutting my teeth in that in that space. And part of that was going to film festivals. And, you know, when you go to film festivals, you meet people from other parts of the country, people who are, work out of L.A., people who work out of Austin, Texas, uh, people who work out of Chicago. And so through my work uh, at Cinematical, I was able to meet some folks who worked at Fandango. And Fandango at that time was just selling movie tickets. And they all they did was sell movie tickets, but they felt like they wanted Fandango to be a bigger part of the entertainment conversation. And so they were like, we want to like have like movie news. And you know, eventually they they would have celebrity interviews and, and stuff like that. And so they I I had met them, I think probably at another at one of these Sundance film festivals or at one of these film festivals that I was at. 
And uh, we kind of connected. And then through that, they were like, hey, would you kind of come write some movie news for us on Fandango? Because we want to have extra stuff to supplement, you know, uh, and or complement the, the ticketing service. And I started doing that for them. And uh, and then I just never left. <laughs> so uh, eventually I, I kind of uh, transitioned into working for them full time. Uh, then I became a staff employee. Um, and then just this month, I became a director of uh, all of the content and editorial and social for Fandango. So uh, so now I kind of run run the ship uh, when it comes to content for Fandango and, and also Voodoo. We, we acquired Voodoo a couple of years ago. That's a uh, like an on-demand site. So like if you want to go buy and rent movies a la carte, um, like it's sort of the old blockbuster way, but digitally. That's uh, Voodoo uh, is one of those spots. So we also own that. So, so now you know my job, uh, which is is interesting. It, it kind of covers, you know, a movie's entire life cycle. So like I'm I'm writing. You know, we're covering like when somebody's cast in a film, all the way until that film is available to rent. You know, for VOD for like three ninety nine. So I'm with movies now for a very long time, um, and and talking about the journey of the film. Uh, very early on too, you know, and so, it, which is nice. It's it's fun to be able to cover a film all the way through its entire life cycle. Right. And so also in case anyone's wanting Fandango is basically like StubHub or Ticketmaster of movies where you can reserve seats and buy. But I also, there was this, there's this social media content and more editorial content that you do. I'm also curious, how would you say that Fandango has evolved? I mean, obviously you just said that they've, Become, you know, they bought voodoo and stuff, but how is your, your job with Fandango different now than it was, say, five years ago? Yeah, I would say, you know, when when we when we started Fandango, it was just writing like little blog articles, you know, and so uh, the sort of social media explosion, the explosion of video, I would say that has change the job dramatically because it's not just about writing a little news article on um you know uh, i don't know uh vin diesel being cast in some movie you know now you're kind of telling that story in different ways across all of these other platforms you know how do you talk about vin diesel being cast in the movie on instagram versus twitter versus facebook versus youtube versus on Fandango.com. We also, not only did we acquire Voodoo, we also acquired Rotten Tomatoes. So I, wor I worked very closely with the Rotten Tomatoes team as well, and I collaborate with them, and I also will do stuff for them as well. And they expand uh, beyond just what is in theaters to what is streaming. They also cover TV. And so my job, I think, has expanded uh, greatly in, in scope and then also sort of uh, in the way that we cover films. Um, you know, we, we've added video. We also acquired the largest uh, movie network on YouTube. It was it was called Movie Clips. We have since rebranded it to, to be Rotten Tomatoes. Um, and so there's like over, I want to say 80 million subs um, across the entire network. And we have uh, pages dedicated to trailers, pages dedicated to just clips. Uh, Fandango has its own page where we put all of our interviews. Voodoo has its own page where we put a lot of special features and extended scenes for films that are arriving at home. So, you know, uh, I, my, I would say my job has changed because when I think about a film, 
and covering a film. I'm not just thinking about how do we cover it on Fandango.com. I'm thinking about how are we covering it in all of these different places. Um, right now, I'm busy with TikTok because we're not on TikTok yet. It's been a it's been a platform that's been a little bit. Uh, it's taken a little bit longer for us to get on and to figure out how we want to be on it. And so, a lot of what I'm dealing with right now is um, is TikTok, which is a platform I am personally not on. And so, I am thankful to my 13 year old daughter who is on it and lives on it. Uh, because I have to pick her brain a lot <laughs> when I do when it comes to TikTok. Yeah, I'm not a TikTok. Anybody who knows me knows I'm not a fan of TikTok whatsoever <laughs> for a variety of reasons. But good luck to you guys when you get on that. I mean, you just described a lot. And I think a lot of people when they see Fandango don't even realize that a lot of that goes, you know, raw tomatoes and voodoo and all these other things. So what is your, obviously now you're, you're moving up the food chain here. What is your favorite part of the job? I would say my favorite part of the job is probably twofold it's it's watching the movies um and like today uh, you know um I'm, I'm starting to cover uh or or starting to report on the toronto festival which is my favorite film festival to go to because they launch a lot of big awards contenders a little bit a lot of big oscar contenders will start the journey to the oscars at the toronto film festival and debut their films there and so um, my, my, I would say the twofold favorite parts of the job are attending film festivals like Toronto and uh, sort of taking like five or six days and immersing myself in film, watching five films a day and just kind of losing myself in it. It's almost like a, it's almost like a reset for me, especially after like a summer blockbuster season of like sequels and remakes and superhero films, like to go to a film festival watch movies that I haven't watched trailers for. I don't know much about them. I'm just walking in. Maybe I know a couple of people who are in the film. Maybe I know the director. Um, it's just a real clean experience with the film. And getting to do that four or five times a day for like five or six days for me as a movie fan is like, it's like summer camp, but that's like my 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 fantasy camp for me. So that I would say is is one of my favorite parts. And then also kind of the conversation you get to have with the audience. Um, my platform of choice is Twitter. And so I have a, a pretty substantial following over there. And I'm all, you know, all day we're, we're geeking out on movies and, and I'm, I'm sort of talking to the audience and, and having a conversation back and forth with a lot of people that follow me from all over the world. Um, and which is a lot of fun, you know, especially when there's a big film that opens up globally. Um, you know, I have people who follow me in India, you know, in Singapore, um, in Europe and uh, in, in Tokyo. And it's always fun that when to have a conversation with them and they're sending me pictures of the movie theater experience where, where they are. And we're talking about what it looks like and, and how they experience movies. And that to me is super interesting. And, and I love um, I love that part of it. So, yeah, those would be the two parts of my favorite parts. Mr. Worldwide over here. Uh yeah, I think you have to be worldwide in these days. You know, I, movie going is is a worldwide experience, and I think for the longest time, you know, the United States kind of is very insular and sort of like it's it's always about like us and what's happening here, you know. But you know, globally, the theatrical marketplace is bigger than it is in the United States, and so I think it's really it's really important to to tap into that. And as a movie fan. And as a fan of exhibition, as a fan of going to the movies um, and the theatrical experience, I'm always interested 
in in knowing what it's like in other places of the world and and um and so I love interacting with folks, especially in India. They're crazy about movies over there. Oh yeah, and, and yeah. they're like they're, they're some of their screenings are just wild, fireworks and stuff going off. I don't, I don't even know the kind of crazy fire hazards and stuff that they have going on at their movie screenings. But um, it's I have a lot of fans from India who follow. Yeah, me and, and it's good, it's good talking to them. And it's been it's been a big year for them too. Every time I read, there's always like a big blockbuster in India, like the RRR franchise and those sort of films coming out. So it seems like they're having a good year for them. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not just in India, but a lot of those films are starting to penetrate the box office in bigger ways uh, in the United States. You know, uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of the, the, the money that those movies make, uh, they make from, from people who aren't in India, who are, uh, you know, people who have left India or, um, and, or there are people who are following the, the, the Bollywood scene and, um, and we're starting to see a lot more of those films released in wider theatrical release in the States. And we're starting to see a lot more tickets being sold and, and more box office for those films. And so, um, you know, I am paying a lot more attention to, to that cinema um, these days than maybe I did five years ago. Yeah, that's great. International film, I always say to anybody, always watch if you can watch the international films. They're starting to get a little bit more recognition at the Oscars. We drive my car, Parasite, but single you there for sure. I do want to talk to you though about you. You do do a lot of interviews for Fandango, and you've talked about how you've interviewed Spike Lee, Steven Spielberg, the Safdie brothers, Kevin Costner, Steve Carell, John Krasinski, a whole lot more people than that. You've been interviewed a lot. Obviously, you've been on features like on the Today Show. CBS This Morning, Good Morning America. You just said you do like a radio bit yeah. this morning. So what is it like to be interviewed versus interviewing in your experience? Oh, I, I mean, I would say being interviewed is is much easier. Talking about myself, I could do that all day, you know. But when you interview someone, you have to do a lot of you have to do a lot of work ahead of time to kind of create a roadmap for yourself, you know? And, and, and when I get to interview somebody, it, it, they're all different kinds of situations, you know? Um, you can interview somebody at a press junket where you have three and a half minutes. And so how do you talk to somebody in three and a half minutes? Um, a lot of the last couple of years has been over virtually, which is always the most difficult way to interview somebody when you only have and a half minutes. And so there's, uh, you know, there's figuring out how to do that and getting enough out of them that, you know, you have a decent interview. Um, and then there's the interviews that are my personal favorite, which are the ones like in, in a live uh, theater, in the theater, usually these are like awards contenders that they're bringing around and they're screening them for like guilds that vote on awards, you know, a Screen Actors Guild or the Directors Guild or, you know, the Writers Guild. You know, they all vote on on the best films of the year, uh, their respective guilds. But before they do that, they have screenings and they bring talent to screenings. And then there's a conversation. Usually it's about a half hour to 40 minutes long. Those are my favorite because you can really kind of tap into a subject and you can really create a rapport with somebody and get to know them a little bit and, and, and have them feel comfortable telling, you know, stories they haven't told before or, or, you know, just kind of having a really nice conversation. You also have a live audience right there that you can kind of play off of as well. And so those are my favorite kinds of conversations, but they're also the most difficult 
to, to plan, you know, and, you know, I, I always create a roadmap in my head. I'm somebody that doesn't like to have a card in front of me. Um, I don't like to have notes in front of me. I like to just kind of do my homework ahead of time and then go have a conversation with somebody. And so I would say, yeah. So, I mean, to come back to your original question, being interviewed is a lot easier because I could just, you know, talk about myself all day, <laughs> but interviewing somebody is always difficult too. And, and, and depending on who it is, you know, you always want to, you also have to prepare in a different way versus a director versus, you know, an up and coming actor versus a veteran actress. You know, you always have to prepare, you know, to the situation. And so I don't do as many interviews these days for Fandango. We have a few women who do a lot of our interviews who are amazing at what they do um, because I've kind of become more behind the scenes uh, in the last couple of years. And, but I do still do a bunch of those interviews for awards, which is separate from Fandango because they'll, they'll bring, you know, the, the company that's doing the hosting, the screening will bring me in to moderate a conversation. So I do a lot of those during award season. So from like September through like February, uh, I'm doing a bunch of those kinds of conversations. And so I'm always looking ahead, like I'm looking ahead at the award season now, and I'm I'm trying to identify those those long conversations I have, and and one of those is uh, is Mr. Steven Spielberg. I've interviewed Spielberg before um, for when he had Ready Player One coming out. That was the first time I had ever interviewed him. It was about maybe I want to say a 13 minute conversation, but um, knowing how personal this film that he has coming out this fall, it's called Fablemans. It's based on his life uh, growing up. Mm -hmm. um, so it's probably going to be his most personal film that he's ever had. And being able to sit down and have a lengthy conversation with him about that, I think would be would be awesome. So that's on my bucket list, my bucket list this year. But uh, but yeah, you and for me, it's directors like I, I geek out more on directors than I do on actors and actresses. So if you always ask me, like, who is like your top three bucket list? of people you want to interview would probably be like directors. Um, yeah. Scorsese probably, right? Scorsese is yeah. still in the bucket list. He, I haven't, I haven't had him yet. Uh, but Paul Thomas Anderson was there for a long time. I've now interviewed him a few times. And then for his last film, Licorice Pizza, I was able to have a 30 minute conversation with him and Cooper Hoffman and Alana Haim. Um, and that was one of my favorite movies last year. So that's really cool. But yeah, Scorsese is, is definitely up there. Wes Anderson. I've never, I've never interviewed him. Uh, that would be a fun interview. Uh, so yeah, you know, so there, there's still, there are still some out there that uh, I'd like yeah, to talk to. For sure. Well, that's great. I do want to start as we kind of wrap up the conversation about your career part. I don't want to wrap up with, I, I was looking at your LinkedIn and I saw that you were, you worked, I guess, as an intern or as a production assistant for NBC during the Olympics. Yeah. And I'm just curious how that was. Cause you did talk about, I've seen some things about you. You talk about your, your sports fan and I can imagine that was a really crazy experience. Yeah, I went to Hofstra University on Long Island, and they have a really good communications uh, program. So if anybody listening here is trying to figure out where to go to school and you want to get involved in like uh, journalism or TV production or, you know, something in the communication space, Hofstra has, I would say, fantastic program, one of the best in the country. So I went there for television production, which is what I did in high school. And so I'm going through their program and, at, and I wanted to be a TV director. I wanted to direct. That was sort of uh, the area of TV, TV production that I, I was really thriving in. And so I did really well there. 
And as I was graduating, they were launching a pilot program where they were selecting some students from the communications program to go over <clears throat> and cover the Sydney Olympics. This is the year 2000 to, to show you how old I am. And so, uh, yeah, so I was lucky to be the only one chosen from my class to go over there. And I was like, sure, I'll go. And so I went as a PA uh, or like a logger and <clears throat> basically a logger kind of uh, gets a sport and then logs all the key moments from that game because then you have to take that information to the editors who are then cutting packages together to air later on in the United States. So I, they asked me, what do you want to cover? I was like baseball and basketball. Those are my two favorite sports. So I was able to cover basketball and baseball. And, you know, you're logging those, those games and you're like, when did so-and-so have a slam dunk? When did so-and-so hit a three-pointer? And then you're sending all of that information over to the editor who is then cutting the piece and package and knowing where all the big moments are. So this way uh, they, they, they can go forward. But what was cool about that experience, not just covering the Olympics and seeing what, it, what it's like behind the scenes, but then also my boss let us go to the gold medal games for the sports that we were covering. So I got to go to, you know, and USA made the gold medal game for right. basketball and baseball that year. That was actually the last year for baseball. I think they they've recently brought it back, but they did. Yes. Yeah. That was the last year for baseball for, for a while. And, and you know, I think it was USA versus Cuba. Um, and we, and we won. And uh, I was really loud in sitting in NBC's section. And I remember somebody yelling at me being like, look, this is NBC's section. You can't, you can't yell. And I was like, but the USA is like winning, <laughs> but, but it, it was exciting. It was cool. And uh, it was cool to, to see it all and how they, how they do it. Yeah, that's awesome. That's, that's, that's definitely a life altering experience, but you've, you know, stranger to big events. You, you were just at Comic-Con, which is, I guess the Olympics kind of, of fandom, San Diego Comic-Con. You want to just talk about, I mean, you've, how long have you covered Comic-Con? How was this year? A little bit different. Yeah, I will say that I did not go this year. I, I didn't go this year. I, I know I've been 11 times, but I helped. I We had a team on the ground this year and I tapped out um, of, of, of the event this year. Uh, when you go 11 times to Comic-Con, you know, you, there's not necessarily, if you, could, if you could put a team there, I'd rather do that. But, um, but yeah, so, and so I covered from home, helping and assisting that team that was there. Um, you know, if you know like a, like a Mission Impossible movie, have you how you have the guy in the chair who's like, go right here, go left here. That was basically my job uh, this year was sort of assisting some of the newbies that we had on the ground and what it's like there. Um, but it was a pretty, I would say it was a pretty decent year. You know, uh, Comic-Con over the last several years has been more TV focused than it is film focused. And I think a lot of the movie studios are trying to figure out, you know, it's a lot of money to go and bring something yeah. to Comic-Con. And so how much are you getting out of it? Uh, there's so much noise there. Uh, is it, can you break through? Can you bring something to Comic-Con and use the hype of Comic-Con to translate to it doing really well on TV or really well in the theater? And so that's always something at least, at least pre-COVID, uh, you know, I would say the five years pre-COVID um, that was a lot of conversation there is, is how worth it is Comic-Con to us and, and what should we bring there? But I think, you know, the Marvel and the DC are always going to be there. And, and Marvel, I, I would say, made, made a big splash this year and probably was the most successful at what they wanted to do and, and uh, what they executed sort of Saturday late 
uh, at Comic-Con. Yeah. When I ever think about Comic-Con, I think about like two years in particular, my, I didn't really research this, may should have, but was the year when DC unveiled like their Schneider verse back in like 2014 when they released like the tent, you know, none of that ended up coming out a lot of it, but I remember that was a, like one of the massive deals. And also when Avengers did their like three years out, we're going to have Endgame back in like 2015. Those always stick in my mind. So I do think it's possible. I think uh, this year, you know, there was a lot of different trailers. Wakanda Forever released a trailer. Dungeons and Dragons released a trailer, which was my personal favorite. You know, I haven't never played the game. John Wick released a ta- trailer. Shazam released a trailer. Then obviously Marvel announced their panel. What was your favorite, not either trailer or like announcements that you thought were like, okay, this is a big deal or this is something I'm really excited for? Yeah, I, I, my, I, my favorite trailer was that Black Panther trailer, personally. I thought they, they did a really great job. I mean, that was a trailer that had so much that it had to do. Um, you know, not just is it following up one of the biggest films that's ever, ever been made. Uh, that first Black Panther movie was just a lightning bolt at the box office. But, um, you know, Chadwick Boseman passed away in between, in between the last film. And so that was, uh, this was a really... It was a lot that this trailer had to sort of uh, touch on. And I thought it did a really, really good job. And it was a really emotional trailer. And I think, you know, Marvel Studios had a lot they had to do here. And going into Comic-Con, I think there were a lot of people that, you know, had seen how they built up to Avengers Endgame. And they they weren't necessarily seeing that that kind of um, ramp up to uh, some kind of big conclusion out of these phase four movies. And so I think they had to come to Comic-Con and, and, and give a roadmap and say, look, this is um, where we're going. And these are the stories that we're going to tell. Uh, and this is the format that we're going to tell those stories. Here are some new titles. Here are some release dates. I think they had to do all of that. Um, and, and I thought they were very, very successful. I thought this this Marvel Studios panel was probably one of their most successful that that they that they've ever had um, at a time when they really really needed to come out and and dish out a lot of information to kind of reset what their path is. So um, I would say that they were the most successful. I like that Dungeons and Dragons trailer too. Um, what I've been talking to people about is you know whether or not the popularity of Dungeons and Dragons in Stranger Things is going to bleed out into uh this Dungeons and Dragons movie I think the the biggest chance that that film has at success is tapping in to sort of this younger fandom that has built up around Stranger Things and the inclusion of Dungeons and Dragons and Stranger Things um and and using that to to push the, the film forward but um I think it looks fun I'm a big fan of Chris Pine in like as a charismatic bumbling hero I think he's always fun to watch so I'm curious to see but like we've seen films that have taken really popular role-playing games like World of Warcraft, not a successful movie. So I think that, you know, Dungeons and Dragons has been around a long time, a lot of different iterations that we've seen. Uh, can they, you know, launch a franchise for it out of this movie that comes out next year? So it'll be interesting to see. I think it comes out in the same month, I want to say, as John Wick. So yeah, watch out for John Wick. John Wick, I would say, is probably the... The film that made the loudest noise at Comic-Con without actually being at Comic-Con. Right. <laughs> so my, my hat's off to the marketing folks behind John Wick because they managed to not go to Comic-Con, but still like release like probably I think our most viewed trailer at a Comic-Con was John uh-huh. Wick. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that's that's a sleeper hit potentially because the breakout it's on that trajectory of like the Fast and Furious Mission Impossible trajectory where you get like the first three and then you build from there. Um, yeah, yeah, there are they're doing the spinoff I think uh, called the Ballerina with with what's her name from that's in the play is playing Marilyn Monroe and in, in Blonde Anna De Armas. Uh, yeah, Anna De Armas. She's she's gonna star in that I believe. Yeah, um, I was just gonna bring that up because the trailer just dropped for that movie like three hours ago. I just want to get your thoughts on NC-17. From You've been in the business. That only happens once every couple of years. Do you think that's... It's released on Netflix. I don't really get the practical effect of that because, I mean, I guess Netflix has to do something with it because it's usually for, like, in theater, you can't go. NC-17 basically means for everybody that's not aware, you can't be under 17 and go. If it's R, you can go with a parent or whatever, but you, no one's allowed in. So I just, do you think that builds hype for a movie at all or is the NC-17 more of a detriment? I mean, I definitely, I think it, it's... Uh, these days, maybe it's it feels more market play because it does make your film film seem like, uh, ooh, you know what's what's NC seventeen like? I gotta I have to kind of check this out. What what is what is in here that is uh, that makes it NC seventeen? Uh, I think the dangerous thing about that with a film about Marilyn Monroe is just you know Marilyn Monroe is Marilyn Monroe. She means a lot to people in different ways, and so. When you say we're going to come out with Marilyn Monroe film that's NC seventeen, you know, on the surface that can say to a lot of fans that you know they're they're doing a lot of things to that that may they may feel distasteful, um, or 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 you know hurt her character in some way, um, you know. People when it's a real person, there are a lot of people connected to that. You know, we saw it with Elvis too. You know, Elvis not NC seventeen, but you know, there's a lot of conversation around that Elvis movie because people have their own personal relationships with Elvis that they want to see projected on screen. And so, you know, already we're seeing a lot of that in the conversation around this Marilyn Monroe film, and um, and and you know, well, you know, what are they going to do here? And fans want it, want them to be explicit about it being fictional, but. You know, there's aspects of it that clearly fictional that are based on her real her real life. They recreated iconic shots as well. So um, I think it's going to be there's going to be a lot of conversation around this film. Um, how good is it? Is it an awards contender? We'll have to see. It is rolling out at these fall film festivals. And so we'll have a chance to, to see, you know, whether it's a it's a contender or not. But. Um, but I am curious, you know, and we don't see a lot of films these days that are NC-17, but, you know, if you're going to make them, hey, make them, make them, make them for the streaming services because you could drop that right on there and uh, and you don't got to worry about, you know, your MPAA ratings. Right. Uh, you did bring up uh, Elvis. I was going to get to the summer blockbusters in a second, but the last thing about Comic-Con I want to touch on is Comic-Con, is it losing relevancy a little bit because, you know, DC fandoms like, they want to save some stuff for that. Uh, Disney has their own like expo that they're making into more of a big deal to drop stuff. And some of the other studios have sat out largely like universal haven't, you know, some studios have just let Marvel like do it and just not really done anything. Do you think that it's losing its significance as like this, is, if you want to release a blockbuster or a big franchise, this is where you announce it or do press for it. Or is it just still going to be like a Marvel thing? I mean, I think it's still too early to tell, you know, is it losing some, um, some, is it losing some, some from the major film studios? Yeah. You know, Sony wasn't there this year. Uh, Universal wasn't there this year. 
Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there are some studios that just sit out entirely. Uh, DC fandom, I hesitate to to go there because I don't know how much of an annual event that's going to become. You know, that was an event really born out of the fact that everybody was virtual and at home. And that was an event that was executed virtually, you know, unlike something like D23, um, which is live in person, you know, or Comic-Con, which is live in person, and they had to adjust their in-person to a virtual experience. DC Fandom began as a virtual experience. And, and I would feel like once there are more in-person conventions, I don't know how much sense it makes to continue being just a virtual event for DC. Uh, so I'm curious to see what they do there. And uh, I keep asking my, my, my friends at Warner Brothers, and they don't know uh, whether or not they're going to do another one. So I still hesitate to say that that's going to become an annual thing. I think it should be. Um, but I still hesitate on that front. But yeah, I mean, you know, Marvel still came to Comic-Con and dropped a significant amount of stuff. And they'll also have more for D23. So I do think that Marvel can find that balance between Comic-Con and D23. Um, they could also launch their own event if they wanted to. And so I do think that studios would start looking at their own universes and whether or not it does make sense to have some kind of our own thing. But I do also think that you 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 should have some kind of um, presence at Comic-Con. And I don't think that's going to go away. I think we could see more TV be there. I think the big TV stuff will always be there. Uh, I don't see an Amazon Prime-a-thon. I don't see... <laughs> Uh, you know, right. I don't, you know, Netflix is doing their own kind of virtual kind of events. Right. Same sort of thing. Yeah. But um, I don't see, you know, universal, uh, you know, but we'll see, you know, we'll see what happens. But I, I think Comic-Con is okay for now. I think the fans are still going to pack it in because there's a lot of stuff that they engage with that isn't necessarily movie related from the merch to the floor to whatever, to the costumes, the cosplay. So there's a lot that goes into Comic-Con that will always be part of Comic-Con that will always draw big crowds. Um, it's just a matter of like what big movies will be there. Um, I think that's going to just change from year to year. Okay. So you have any predictions for next year's Comic-Con? Anything that you eyeing up that's going to be the big seal of the show? Uh, for next year, well, we'll be at, uh, I, I'm pulling up my release calendar as you say that. So we're looking at July 2023. Uh, Indiana Jones 5 will have just come out. The Flash, if it will have just come out. A Mission Impossible will have just come out. Um, you'll have Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. You'll have the Marvels coming out like right after Comic-Con or right around Comic-Con. Uh, so, uh, And then you'll have... Um, Madam Web will be coming out that October. Uh, you'll have Blade coming out that November. Uh, and then you'll have these 2024 movies like um, Spider-Man, Beyond the Spider-Verse, Captain America will have a movie, Thunderbolts, Fantastic Four. So, I mean, there's a ton that Marvel can bring there, ton of, ton of footage that Marvel can bring. DC, we'll see how much they've announced at that point, but DC can bring some stuff. You know, there'll be a Ghostbusters movie coming out at the end of the year. Um, so I could see maybe Sony being there. Dune Part 2 will be coming out in November. So maybe Warner Brothers does a bigger panel that isn't just DC-focused, but maybe bring, they bring that whole that whole cast of Dune. That would be a smart play. 
for Warner Brothers. So I see that being there. Um, you know, and like I said, Sony will have Madam Web. They'll have Ghostbusters. They'll have this Spider-Man Beyond the Spider-Verse movie coming out in 2024. They'll have that El Muerto movie with Bad Bunny coming out in January of 2024. So it would make sense for Sony to be there next year. Um, and but beyond that, you know, we'll see. Yeah, for doing that, it's going to make sure they order enough chairs so everyone can sit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that, it, you know, it would be really smart for Warner Brothers to bring that second Dune movie to Comic-Con next year. I think they need to. Um, I think they have, there's a lot of potential with Dune. I think it could be their Star Wars. Yeah. Um, I think they, they that first movie is, it, it sets up the mythology in a really, I think, accessible way. And so I think there's a lot of potential with Dune. Um, and I think that they want to start injecting that into pop culture in a bigger way. And I think they they need to go to Comic-Con in order to do that. And that, I think that is a really great example of a film that needs to be at Comic-Con. Is yeah. that that Dune sequel. I think I, I think they have big plans for it too. The way they're let like the the cast that they brought in to add as well, singles that they they have plans for that going forward for sure. Yep, yep. My last question for you is what was your what is your favorite Comic-Con moment? That you've been in Hall H for, even when you haven't been in Hall H, what would you say is your top Comic Con moment? Wow, my top Comic Con moments. Uh, I would probably be from being in a Hall H. And you know, I was talking about this the other day. Um, I was in Hall H when they brought in when they introduced the Avengers for the first time. When they brought out that Infinity War cast and Endgame cast, um, but. One of my 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 favorite moments was the year that they released the first Deadpool trailer. Um, they were making this Deadpool movie. Fox and Disney hadn't merged yet. Um, it, with the promise of like this R-rated Deadpool, Ryan Reynolds playing him. Um, I had become friends with the creator of Deadpool, Rob Liefeld, and I had convinced Rob to come with me right after they that panel and and interview him. And I remember they dropped that trailer and it was so unexpected and the place went bananas for it. And they were chanting to watch it again. And there was, it was just such excitement for something. And, you know, that, that trailer dropped after we had a bunch of Marvel movies and, you know, Marvel had gotten us a bit complacent in terms of the kind of superhero films or the boundaries that a superhero film can push. And here comes this like R rated comedy that just looked filthy and exciting and funny. And it just, it felt so refreshing to that genre. And so that was a really exciting moment. And, you know, being in, in that room with 6,000 people um, going bananas over a trailer, there really is nothing like it. Um, it it's, it's, it's a very unique, singular experience um that that is is something that i think everybody should experience any movie fan at least once in your life but that moment i would say was really cool and then i got to hang out with rob afterwards and we we, we talked a little bit about the trailer and he was blown away and and then look and then deadpool went on to be a big thing and now it's part of the mcu and that was one of the announcements we did not get at comic-con this year was when is deadpool 3 coming out is disney gonna have it r-rated if it is R-rated and they use Deadpool in other movies, how does that change the character? So there's a lot of questions I have about Deadpool, um, and I'm curious to see what they do with that. There is a uh, February 16th, 2024, 
is still an untitled Marvel movie for Disney. I am I am betting that that's going to be Deadpool three. It's a no brainer in my opinion. I mean, Disney released adult movies for like thirty years, forty years. When they used to have that subdivision, like they used to. I mean, they never used. You don't have to have the. You know, when you wish, like, nah, nah, nah. you just like have the whatever and you just start the movie. Um, I don't know. They've, they made, they used to make R rated movies. I don't know why it's such a big deal now that they're so afraid. I mean, they also have the, I know that's why they bought 20th Century. I mean, many reasons why they bought it, but now they kept it so they could just put the R rated movies there as like a subdivision. But yeah, you know, I mean, it, it really is driving me a little bit mad that they have a Predator movie coming out that's just going on Hulu, uh, you know, like right. in early August. I, I feel like that's a movie that should be in theaters and then and then put it at home. You know, um, I, I saw an interview with the director, this guy, Dan Trachtenberg. I know him personally. Nice guy. He makes great stuff. This Prey movie, solid movie. Definitely watch it. You know, but... He was like, you know, we made a great, uh, a giant theatrical experience, you know, for you to experience at home. And I'm, I kind of looked at that and I was like, a giant theatrical experience only exists inside a theater. (laughs) It's, you know, you made a, you know, you made a movie that should have been a giant theatrical experience. Um, And I'm sure he's a little bit bummed about that, but that's the world we're in right now. You know, these, these studios are creating these things and then they're trying to make that decision between, do we just bring this out at home? Or do we put it in theaters or what do we do? Um, and uh, so we got to have to just go with decisions that they, they, they make, you know? Yeah, no, I know. I, I don't know. Disney or not, I don't, I think, I mean, I don't want to be too harsh on Bob Chavik, but I think there's some mismanagement going on over there, but now transitioning to the summer season, this is a really big summer for film. I mean, last year was sort of the comeback summer, but this is really, we've had bigger movies now than we've had, we had a bigger June than we did in 2019, I believe. It's what nine straight weeks over 100 million dollars. So it's basically like this is, this is how the box office normally works. Yeah. From, from I mean, obviously from a Fandango's perspective, it's been great with ticket sales. Can you just talk about how like how important this has been? How really positive this has been for the industry? It has been. You know, I would I would definitely say this is the summer that movies came back in full form, um, and I really look at. You know, yes, that Doctor Strange movie in early May, but more Top Gun Maverick. I thought Top Gun Maverick really created this momentum that all of these films that came after it took advantage of. Um, A lot of films overperformed this year, this summer. And I think a lot of that had to do with Top Gun Maverick. You know, Maverick being a film that wasn't a superhero movie, uh, you know, a lot, it it, it kind of reached a, a, a really large audience a lot of those people maybe hadn't been back to the movies yet. They went back to see Top Gun Maverick. They had a great time. It reminded them what the movies was like when you when you see a good movie. And I think that has sort of provided this momentum for people saying, you know what? I forgot that it was really fun going to the movies. I'm going to go see Jurassic. I'm going to go see this. I'm going to go see that. And now maybe as whereas before Top Gun Maverick, maybe going to the movies wasn't necessarily part of their weekly, monthly going out plans. After Top Gun Maverick, it now finds its way back into their their regular sort of scheduling. So I think that film did a lot for the industry in terms of bringing people back and reminding them that this is, you know, watching a good film, an entertaining film is a lot of fun. And um, I think people have just kind of been riding that, that off of that experience all summer. And so... It's been a good summer. You know, there have been films that maybe 
didn't perform as well as we thought they would perform. That Pixar movie, Lightyear, I'm looking at that movie. Um, but a lot of films, you know, they did overperform and um, and they did well. And and like this past week, we had a an original an original film, that Jordan Peele film, Nope, which I love. Um, that that you know, it's it's good to see that that we're we're still getting original films too in in the summer. Right, and there's been also just to sort of reiterate this point, uh, this summer, there's was three movies that made over forty million dollars in one weekend. That's an extremely rare occurrence. We had two films open above hundred million back to back weeks. That's a rare occurrence. We almost had five movies op- have over twenty million dollars in the same week, but Lightyear kind of let us down, so we didn't get that. That also would have been another milestone. But yeah, these yeah. things have happened very rarely, so that kind of puts it to perspective that. This has been really positive, but now, I mean, we have DC League of Pets this week, Bullet Train next week, but then it's kind of like a dead zone a little bit through until October. I mean, there's a, there's really not anything. I mean, there's a couple movies, but like, don't worry, darling, but there's not really a lot. Do you worry that maybe the momentum is going to get halted and we have to wait till October till we get Halloween and like Wakanda and Creed and all these other different movies? I think that, I think demand on a massive blockbuster level will probably be a little bit halted until we have another blockbuster, you know, like when we're talking like big hundred million dollar openings. Yes. I think we're going to have to wait until we get closer to like black Adam, black Panther before we'll start seeing those $100 million opening weekends come back into the picture. But that doesn't mean that there won't be, you know, stuff to go see. Um, There'll be more horror movies. There's some family movies. There'll be some awards contenders, um, you know, and I, I, I sort of like we were always as we transition from season to season, we're we're always going through this, you know, August we're at mid to late August and then September historically aren't blockbuster months. So this isn't something that like is new to the industry. This is sort of what it always is as we transition from summer blockbuster season to award season to film festival season, you know, and so there's a large uh, part of that audience that's like, I don't want to go see the Marvel movie. Tell me when like the awards movies start coming out. And, you know, now is when they start coming out. And, you know, mid to late August is also a genre dump. You know, it's usually like genre films, like horror films, like films that people aren't necessarily don't, aren't looking at a lot. And so sometimes there's always a nice surprise there for, for a genre fan. And so, you know, yeah, there's no way blockbusters coming out until October, but, you know, I think, I still think there'll be a bunch of stuff and, you know, especially for the horror fan, we're actually, we're not going to do a full movie preview this year. We're going to do a full horror movie preview this year instead, because there's a lot more horror movies coming out and it's been a bit quiet on the horror front. Yeah. So, uh, so if you're a horror fan, then gear up because, you know, you got some stuff on the way. Yeah, it's the safest bet. Horror and superhero movies. Yep. You know those are going to make money. Yep. Uh, my last question would be for you, what are you looking forward to on a, either whether it's on a personal level with your, with Fandango, what you guys and Rotten Tomatoes, what you guys are doing, or more of like an industry level, next six months to 12 months, what's something that either you're really excited for that people need to keep an eye on as something that's big that's going to be happening? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm looking forward. 2023 looks like a monster year. I felt like 2022 was a year of just kind of returning and getting back into theaters, getting some really big movies out, you know, getting everyone back 
into the theatrical experience and seeing movies on the big screen and rooting for them and going to in-person events and big premieres. And sort of this was the year of us kind of getting it back into that groove again after like two and a half years. And so 2023, I think, was going to be the, you know, a huge film, a huge year for movies. Um, there's a ton of stuff coming out. So I, I'm, I'm really excited about next year's lineup of movies. Um, and, you know, I'm curious to see kind of what happens to the industry post-COVID, you know, when, when, when everybody was in lockdown, you know, streaming, the streaming services became the biggest things, you know, in the world. And, and, and now when people coming back out, you know, they started going back to the movies and streaming. It's like, well, what's going to happen there? And so I'm curious to see sort of post-COVID, what are the kinds of movies that are being made for the big screen versus the small screen? What is our relationship, you know, to movie going versus streaming? You know, what are the streaming platforms that continue to make really great content that, you know, which are the ones that maybe start to fall off? Um you know, all those kinds of questions I'm I'm curious about. Uh, a lot of the stuff that's still coming out now was stuff that was greenlit before COVID. And uh, a lot of these productions happened during COVID. Uh, and so I'm curious to see once we're beyond that, you know, what is being greenlit in this new era? What are the stories that are being told? Um, that's that's what I'm most most curious about, you know. Awesome, yeah. I, I second you there for sure. The streaming wars are just, they're going to end eventually. We just don't know when. So where can everybody find you uh, on social media or plug whatever you want? Yeah. Uh, I mean, my, my platform of choice is Twitter. I'm at Eric uh, Davis, Eric with a K. So E-R-I-K-D-A-V-I-S on Twitter. So follow me there. Um, I'm having a conversation every, every day on Twitter. Um, other than that, you know, I would say download Fandango app if you don't have it already. Get your movie tickets over there. And uh, Vudu, if you don't have Vudu, if you don't know what Vudu is, but you like to buy and rent movies a la carte, um, you know, download Vudu. You know, keep in mind, you know, all these big summer movies, Top Gun, Jurassic, uh, The Black Phone, Minions, Elvis, all of these movies, you know, are, are going to be available on, on Vudu uh, before they're available, um, you know, on streaming services. So you may subscribe to Netflix and, you know, HBO Max and Peacock and Apple and all of these. But if you want to watch these big summer movies, um, you know, we're going to have them on Vudu uh, first. In most cases, some of the stuff is going day and date with like Disney Plus and HBO Max. But in most cases, those big movies are going to be on Vudu first. So it's worth checking out. For sure. Yes. As always, you follow us on Twitter, RMN underscore 901. Letterbox, JB, NYRIC, all that good stuff. So thanks so much, Eric. I really appreciate you doing this, coming on, spending spending the last hour with us. Yeah, man. Nice meeting you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, for sure. All right. Bye-bye. Until next time, guys.